It's been 70 years since Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay summited Mount Everest. Since then, hundreds of people attempt to climb the mountain each year. Many of those climbers are injured during their attempts, and during the 2023 climbing season, 17 people died. Preparing for Everest takes years of training, though there's disagreement among mountaineers about how to best prepare for the climb. Statistics might be able to help, and that's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is Moynak Baduri. Baduri is an Assistant Professor of Mathematical Science Sciences at Bentley University. His primary interest includes developing change detection algorithms for point processes. Baduri's research has found applications in computer science, finance, reliability, and repairable systems, geoscience, and oceanography. He also leads the editorial board of the NextGen column for the New England Journal in Data Science. Baduri recently authored an article for significance about how stats might help mountain climbers prepare for Everest. Moynak, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, what got you interested in this this issue of climbing Everest? Right. So I, I have always been fascinated by mountains, have always been intrigued by mountains and those that climb mountains, especially the long peaks, the uh, big mountains. So um, I would say uh, it, it's a combination of personal interest and uh, the kind of nuance, the kind of subtleties we have here uh, for this project, for this problem, because there are many factors, there are many uh, decisions you have to juggle, you have to make while you climb a peak like Everest. So there are some that you can control, like whether or not you can use uh, oxygen, whether you want to use oxygen, or you want to uh, uh, be like Reynold Messner, who says, that mountain climbing should be just very pure. You should be a purist where uh, you should not use uh, bottled oxygen at all. So uh, those are things you can control, but there are others that you cannot, like the number of other teams you have on the uh, on the mountain, on Everest that, that season. So it's, it's a combination of things that you can control and the ones that you cannot control. So there are many subtleties to consider. That's, that's another reason why the complexity of the problem attracted me. Uh, there are others that you can answer with uh, with these predictive models, such as um, there are many open questions in mountaineering uh, uh, folklore, for instance. There are many mysteries, uh, such as we all know that uh, Ed Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, they first climbed the peak, but uh, many believe that uh, around 30 years, three decades earlier, like Mallory and Irvine, uh, Sandy mm-hmm. Irvine, they, they, yeah, they, 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 they could reach the top. They could have reached the top. Um, uh, but there's no like conclusive evidence for that. Uh, so there are things uh, that you can answer with these uh, predictive models. Uh, we can shed some light on those mysteries. But those are the two main reasons, my main uh, interest in mountains and uh, the subtleties and nuances. And also one, uh, one uh, sub-interesting uh, thing was uh, like teaching. So I teach these courses in class, uh, these models in class. So if I can have a topic that is very attractive for them to the, like, to the students, and then that would be good. Yeah. So combination <laughs> of those three. Yeah. Yeah, and as long as it's interesting to you, they're just going to have to suck it up. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that that's true too. Yeah. That's not 
always work for me. Uh, yeah. You know, one thing that was really surprising to me as I was as I was reading your article was yeah. it's been 2214 since since 21, 1921. Yeah, that's very true. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as I was looking at that, then I thought, wow, and the fact that you had all of these variables, uh, you know, mm -hmm. you started to describe some of them. Mm -hmm. I, can you can you talk about a, a little bit about kind of the the types of features or the types mm. of variables you'd use for prediction? Mm. Give examples. Mm. Mm. You're right. There was just like I think in all there were 15 variables. There were 15 predictor variables. Uh, so some were categoricals, uh, like uh, whether or not you want to use oxygen. Uh, the others would be pretty much quantitative, like the amount of days you take to climb. Mm. Uh, there's a slight distinction, which is the total. So one quantitative was, which turned out eventually to be very crucial. One quantitative was the total amount of days you spend on the expedition, mm. and uh, which is, I think, called the total number of days on the paper. And the other would be summit days. So those would be how much time do you spend beyond the base camp to climb the mountain? So those two were quantitatives. And then how much rope? Uh, fixed rope do you use? How many uh, members, like how many Sherpas do you have uh, in your team? The other uh, kinds of nationalities you have, what other kinds? Uh, so those were quantitatives. But so I, I think it's a healthy mix of categoricals and quantitatives. Yeah. So I, yeah. you know, there are two variables that I was sort of, as I was looking at this, I thought, gee, I wonder if they, if this was even available at that time. Mm. Like one, one was what mm. was the weather like? I mean, mm. you you have season, which is right. Think of as a surrogate for that. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. the other was experience of the team. Mm. So, mm. so obviously, you know, early on there, there was there was no one that had experience. But but I, yeah. would, I was curious if those other variables might be something that would be valuable into the future. You're very right. So those are variables uh, we didn't have uh, inside of this uh, uh, dashboard, inside of this uh, the resource. They have the uh, Himalayan mountaineering database uh, maintained by Liz Holly. So they didn't have uh, uh, this information, but there are proxies. So if you have, like, as you mentioned, season is a good proxy for the kind of weather they may face. But still, if you have precise weather information, precise weather data for that specific day when they're trying to climb the peak, or others such as uh, uh, mountaineers like tenacity or experience, as you mentioned, so those would be good things to have. Those would be good things to look at. Uh, but if you think closely, it's a, uh, I mean, you may have other predictors that are good proxies for those. Yeah. Like uh, like uh, if you look at some of the expeditions that are happening like nowadays, the, the guided expeditions onto Everest. So they charge quite a lot. So like 50, 50K, $50,000 to $75,000 at least. So if you're willing to pay that much money, then you're probably very motivated. So there are proxies, although you do not have data on it, and it would be good to have concrete data. But as long as you can have proxies, that's that's quite good too. Yeah. When in your first response, you were talking a bit about sort of this conversation around oxygen, like should you yes. should you not use it? And yeah. I was in this data, like you have like um you know separated like O2 climb O2. Yeah. Yeah. So can yeah. you talk about sort of how you thought about and looked at oxygen and its use or not use in, in relation to sort of the success of an Everest climb? Right. So that uh, would be in, in two ways, basically. One is what you would normally expect. If you talk to any uh, climber, uh, if you have no uh, special goal to achieve, like nowadays, many mountaineers, they just do not want to climb. They want to climb without using oxygen. 
or they want to climb two peaks at the same time in the same expedition to get sponsorships and things like those. So unless you have any specific goal in mind like that, then you would argue that it's, of course, better to to use oxygen so your body gets acclimatized and things like those. So you have uh, more red blood cells flowing to your brain. So that's a, that's 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 one reason to uh, to help your body adapt, sort of. Uh, that's the intuitive understanding, and even the models told us so. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the tree based models that we are using basically uh, they rely on some factors, like what question should you ask at the very beginning to help you decide whether you should uh, whether you could climb or not. What's the most crucial decider? What's the most crucial factor? So from the perspective of the model too, we had the same result that oxygen is quite crucial indeed. Yes. So before we we dive into the models in a little more mm-hmm. detail, uh, you've talked about the features or these mm-hmm. these predictor variables. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what were the what were the responses that you were that you were modeling? Yeah, yeah. So that is a very good question because if you look into the uh, database, there is a possibility, there is a way, there is a chance you can tweak your response a little bit. Um, so for this project, uh, the response was success or failure, and success was defined this way. Uh, if uh, even one member inside of your expedition, even if one member inside of your team could reach the top, that counts as success. But you may be more demanding. You may want to say, that, no, I, I'm not good with that definition. I want all of my members or a substantial number of my uh, members to, to reach the top. So there is a chance to tweak that definition too. Uh, so yeah, you're modeling uh, whether or not at least one member uh, in your a team got to the top. Yes, that's the response. So so uh, I you know I know that if people are listening, they're probably there's probably just this the basic question is well how, you know how hard is it? I mean what's the <laughs> so you know what, is, what's the yeah. crude proportion of of times mm. that are mm. successful in in mm. this. So strangely enough, it's 62%. If you look at the full history, 62%, almost 62%, they are successful. And how is that success- changing time? Yes, over time, right? Yes. So we, you would you would you would you would expect if you if you look into the literature, you would expect that time is a very crucial factor because as time goes on, you get more and more knowledge about the mountain, your climbing gear improves. Uh, so we did use a the time variable as a predictor, but turns out it turned out to be the fourth crucial, the fourth most, the fifth most crucial. Oh, hmm. uh, yeah. It's still, I mean, no matter what, when would you want to climb the mountain in the recent past or in the primitive history, whenever it is, uh, oxygen and the route taken, whether or not uh, you're spending quite a long time on the road, they are becoming, uh, I mean, more crucial. Uh, time is still very relevant. It's still very crucial, which could be a proxy for the quality of gear that that's evolving or the amount of knowledge you have about the mountain. Uh, but it's I think it's the fourth, the fifth most crucial factor. Yes. You mentioned the route. Are there particular routes up Everest that are are more prone to sort of yeah. than others? Yeah. So if you look into, I think uh, there is a uh, figure inside of uh, figure three where um, each dot that you see on the top left represents a route. So the most popular uh, would be the South Col Southeast Ridge, um, which is what uh, Hillary and Tenzing uh, took mm-hmm. for the first climb. But uh, the other expedition I was mentioning, Mallory and Irvine, they, they took the North Col and the Northeast uh, route. 
so yeah, there are some uh, routes which would elevate your chances. If you take that route, uh, that could impact your chances. And it's on uh, figure three, I think, the top the top Oxygen left. Oxygen and a, and a proven route seem like yeah. a good combination if you want. Also, yeah. Also, the other recommendation um, that we would offer is uh, get, 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 get your expedition over very quickly. Mm. Uh, because uh, uh, if, if, if you take a long time, um, I'm talking about the other graph and it's, uh, right, just right below it. So uh, if you look at the yellow portion, that's the region where your log of the odds is maximized, meaning your chances for climbing the top, for climbing the mountain would be maximized. And that yellow is a combination of two things. The first is uh, the number of summit days would be more or less similar to the average. And the total number of days would be should be below the average, mm -hmm. which means basically you uh, would spend a long time above the base camp if you want to get yourself properly acclimatized. But the total expedition, like the total, maybe if you're starting from Kathmandu, so then uh, the total expedition should be done very quickly. Because otherwise, probably the reason what's happening here is people get bored and their motivation drops and things like this could go wrong. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Bentley University's Moynak Baduri about statistics and Mount Everest. Okay, so so now you've got the 62%, you know, that's sort of our, that's that's yeah. coin flip success probability, just without thinking about anything else. So so your, your investigation here then mm. dove into different models or strategies for mm. it. There are three candidates that right. considered as, uh, as competitors in this mm. game. Why don't we step through kind of each of those in turn. So the first the first method that you picked was was one of the favorites for uh, mm -hmm. medical science. Yes. For predicting probabilities of success, logistic. Yeah. yeah. Could, you, yeah. could you give us just a, a quick summary of of what that method does and mm. then and what variables did you use in it? Right. So the logistic is, as you mentioned, quite a big favorite it's, it's it tries to model log of the odds so if you look at um, any binary response like a success or a failure which we have in this case uh the odds is defined uh, the trouble is if you want to apply a linear regression standard linear regression on these probability values it just won't work because probabilities are bounded by zeros and ones uh, so we need to have some kind of a transformation some kind of a conversion so we can apply our linear uh, regression understanding on it and one common transformation we use is log of the odds uh, the odds is basically the probability that you will succeed to the probability that you will not and if you take log of this fraction it turns out to be some variable which is just like your salary can be over any given range so that can be modeled as a straight line function which is probably you are more familiar with so the basic idea behind a logistic is you take log of the odds, just like some kind of a transformation, some kind of a transformed variable, and you pretend you apply your linear regression understanding on it. So once you have this transformed variable to look at, not the original probabilities, not the binaries, but this transformed variable, then your entire linear regression understanding carries over to, to, this, to this level. So then you can uh, use all the all the all the variables that you had in here, all the fifteen variables, to uh, basically get some kind of a prediction of what your probability would be, the probability of climbing, and hence the probability of not climbing to the top would be. Uh, so if that probability turns out to be let's say seventy percent or eighty percent based on that equation, based on that formula, 
then you would have overwhelming evidence. You'll have a big deal of confidence that you will get to the top. So that's how uh, logistics are mainly used. But there's one caveat, there's one thing we have to keep in mind. Uh, no matter what model we build, we have to ensure that it's substantially better than what you could have done if you had just gone with the random flip, which was the 62%. Yeah, so, so if, if I just yeah. get... Best for yeah. everything. I know I'm going to get be right 62% of the time. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. That is where the p values, if you notice carefully inside of table two, I think, there are a few p values going on, which is exactly what, what you're mentioning, Sean. It's, it's basically an evidence that you have done substantially better. So let's say you apply logistic and your success probability, your guess that you'll get to the top turns out to be about 70%. And since it's like pretty close to one, no. Uh, more or less, it's more than 30%, the other side, you would claim that you are likely to reach at the top. So let's say that this is your best guess. And when you uh, really had this experiment, when you really had the climb, you could not get to the top. And then your accuracy, your overall accuracy goes down a little bit. Whereas if you could get to the top, then your accuracy goes up a little bit. So uh, if you keep a long record, if you keep a track record of all these mistakes you have been making, uh, then ideally, if your model is any good, if it's substantially better than random guessing, you would expect this grand accuracy to be bigger than that 62%. Because otherwise, if you had said every expedition will be successful, you would have been right 62% of the times, which is the least, the most basic you could have been, the least you could have done. So that p-value basically says whether the accuracy that you have from logistic or for any model for that matter is substantially more than 62 so like uh, if it's 63, then it's a little subjective. Yeah, 63 is a little better than 62, but some others may argue that it would have been like 72, it would have been like 82. So uh, the test, the formal statistical test, it compares the number you found with some benchmark, with that, uh, with that basic benchmark, and says whether it's substantially more. So the smaller the p-value, the better it is. All right. So, so you know, as you get here, the looking at your results, it sounds like, so you, you go up from about, you get about a 7% lift here. Mm, yeah, 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 that's true. So, so you do a bit, so using information means that you're, you're better at, at predicting yeah. this. So that's, yes. so that's, that's a positive sign. I mean, Hey, that's job security for people in statistics. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. Yes. Yes. And it keeps on going up. Like if yeah. you leave the logistic to the cannon, to the bag, yeah, it just keeps on increasing. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I, I've got a nearest neighbor right now. It's, it's <laughs> Studio, so uh, no, yeah, yeah, come on, you know. So, so you get so. Ha what does it mean to to say go to the next model that you've talked about, which is a, a mm. nearest neighbor and mm. nearest neighbor idea? So help mm. help paint that picture because you know while while logistic mm. is really popular, yeah, medical science epidemiology, right. these nearest neighbor models. Mm. That, I mean, this might be something that recommender systems are using when we're. That that's very true. Yes. Or the next yeah. to watch. So, yeah, so why did we go there, right? So, the, I mean, the main reason, logistic is, is quite a, a popular choice, but every model, they, they come with strings attached. So if you look at logistics, it, it's, it's not a free lunch. I mean, there are assumptions. So one of the most um, common assumptions behind uh, logistic is um, it's something called separability, which is if all the successful climbs uh, they line up with specific values for the predictor. Like uh, if all the successful climb, they correspond to using oxygen, to those that used oxygen. And all the unsuccessful climbs, all the failed climbs, they line up with 
expeditions that did not use oxygen. So if it's very, very automatic, if saying one is automatically implying the other, then uh, there is this problem called separability, which basically means the slopes that you find, the constants that you find inside a phylogistic equation, those constants would be very unreliable, would be very unstable. So if you uh, have a different expedition, if you have a different uh, uh, climb in mind, if you for now have 72 as one of the constants, it can totally change to something entirely different, to 97 or something like that. So that's one reason why we need to move on to the k-nearest neighbor uh, approach. And that in turn also has drawbacks. It has the assumption of uh, a low dimension. So you have to ideally have a, a small number of features, a small number of details to predict your response with. Because if you don't, if you have a high number of details, a large number of uh, columns, a large number of predictors to predict your response out of, then there is something called a curse of dimensionality, which says that your KNN would find no friends to take help from. In higher dimensions, you're very prone to be different from somebody. You're less likely to be similar to somebody. So you're yeah. doing, with this nearest neighbor thing, you're looking yeah. at those 2,200 climbs. Right. And you're saying... Hey, what do you, you, you find distances between them? Yes. Based on some measure of distance between. Correct. And then you're saying, okay, my climb is going to look like this. Yes. Which yes. 2200 or which yes. sort of maybe seven or so of those 20. Yeah. My most. Yeah. Yes. You find out the, the expeditions that are very similar to the one that you are planning. Yep. And you find out the, uh, the, the 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 result that was most common to all those seven. So maybe five out of those seven climbs, the seven other expeditions that are very similar to you, if five of them uh, were successful, then you would go with the majority vote. You mm -hmm. would say that you would you you'd be good to you'd be good to go to. Whereas if like maybe six out of those seven are failed attempts, then you would fail to. So you'd go with the majority. Yes. Yes. So this this puts us so now now we've gone from sixty two to sixty nine with logistic regression. Yes, yes. Three with k nearest neighbors. Mm. So maybe we're just we're, you know <laughs> we're, we're cooking, cooking, yeah. cooking with oil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So now you, you know there's a you you then you then embraced kind of another set of another family of alternatives. Correct. Talk, talk a little bit about kind of what was this final family of alternatives that you considered. The final family is basically a nonlinear family. So if you look at uh, logistic, for instance, then yes, you model log of the odds, but still it's a straight line function. And so the main uh, logic behind the last family would be, what if this way of adding variables is just not right, no matter how long you make that equation last? Um, so um, And also the separability uh, issue goes away. The cursor dimensionality problem in a way goes away if you have the tree-based models. So the last family of models, they, uh, they, they basically ask irrelevant questions towards the top. So like uh, we have one example in here in the paper, which is about squirrels and humans. So it says like, uh, if, if you had to classify whether you're a human or a squirrel, then uh, one uh, question you can ask to have a very good classification, you have a very good separation between the squirrels and the humans would be, uh, or do you have a tail or not? So initially, if you had 100 uh, objects, 100 individuals and you had to classify them you were totally lost if it's 50 50 but if you ask a very relevant question which is like do you have a tail or not then all the squirrels would go onto one side very similar to separability uh, which is not good for logistics at all but very good for trees 
then all the squirrels would go to one side and all those that said we do not have tails would go onto the other side those would be humans so your entropy or your uncertainty will reduce drastically so this is how trees work by asking relevant questions but in practice of course it won't be uh the sort of a problem where it's very simple uh, but in here too for the main problem you ask questions that are relevant like uh, whether or not you used oxygen uh, that will go to the very top of the tree because that's the most crucial decider. And those questions, those details that are not that relevant, they go to the bottom of the tree. They go down and down and down and down. So uh, you can always look at one single tree. And uh, when you have a fresh expedition, you follow the right twists and turns and you reach a last node, a terminal node. And again, you do something very similar to what you did on the canon. You say that you're a uh, result would be the one that's most common in that node. So that's when you do one single tree for which we have an accuracy of something. Uh, but the trouble with that approach is uh, to make your, uh, your classifications perfect, those trees may become very, very deep, which is why then you average. Uh, that's the reason why you average a bunch of trees, which is like you put your expeditions through not just one tree, but many trees, and then you take the majority vote. That's the last category of models. So, so we have so far talked about how oxygen, yes, oxygen is important. Um, using uh, a popular route is important. Correct. Your trip short is important. Yes, yes. What have yes. we left out as far as what like we need to be successful to climb Everest? Um, as far as the data is concerned, those are the key factors. Those are the key things that we need to uh to think about. There is something else we cannot really control. All the things that you mentioned, Rosemary, they are within our control, whether or not we wanted to use oxygen, the amount of time we spend on the road. But the other is uh, the number of teams you have on the mountain that season. Yeah. So that is beyond our control. And there are mountaineers who believe that it's, it's, that, that the crowding is to blame quite a lot. Mm. So if you, if you look at the Hillary step, which is right above, I mean, very near the top, it is pretty crowded. If it's a good day, it's a good day. If it's a good day to climb, then many people, many, many climbers, they throng that slope. So it's uh, you have to wait there quite a lot and you may get just frozen to death. So, uh, yeah. So the number of uh, teams on the, on, the, on the mountain that season is a crucial decider too. It's probably the third, the second or the third most crucial decider. But that's beyond your control. So maybe one of the one of the uh, one of the uh, results that you're trying to get across is that if you convert this to the real scale from the scaled uh, uh, framework to the real scale, it's probably around forty-six teams. That's the sweet spot because beyond it, the log of the odds, your chances would go down. Yeah. that's what the data said. So if you find uh, probably giving permits or giving uh, licenses to climb that season could cap at 46 or run about that that mark because beyond it's too crowded yeah so i i'm, I'm curious as you've done this what what was the most surprising thing time that... i would say time yeah the I... time is yeah it, it's not the most crucial decider it, it's still oxygen it's still the route taken it's still the number of teams you have on the on the mountain it's still the number of days you spend on the road I would have expected time to be a very crucial decider because it's uh, correlated with the climbing gear. Uh, experience is getting better. You have better climbing gear. It's still it's still relevant. Time is still relevant, but it's not at the very top. It's the fourth or the fifth mm -hmm. most crucial decider. Yes. Yes. 
Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. It's been really interesting talking to you. I, as a childhood dream, I once thought I would well, not thought I once dreamed of climbing Everest, and then realized I did not have that kind of dedication in me to to do that. So it was really interesting to read this article. Thank you. You can still do the Everest base camp, though. You don't but, have to be an athlete. Base camp is still still doable. Let's not put that back <laughs> in my bucket list. Thank you so much for being here today, Moina. Thanks for having you. Thanks for having me. Nice catching up. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu, or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.